Welcome to Big Boy Church. I'm, I done hit it. Well, good for you. There you go. I just hit it. <clears throat> Alrighty. Well, welcome back to Big Boy Church. This is episode number three now. It's crazy. Three episodes into this podcast and... Uh, Hopefully, uh, this should be coming out, Chris, if my memory serves me correctly, should be coming out about Christmas time. Christmas time? Yeah. So, Merry Christmas. Are we putting out Are we putting out one a month? One every other week. One, one every other week. So, it'll be How? Okay. at least partway into Advent at this point, I guess. So Well, happy communion Advent season think yeah yeah communion huh and so where we sit now october 21st 22nd 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 is correct uh you're about six days away from having a baby uh according to the experts that's what they say yeah i'm told that the experts don't always know what they're doing on this one though so it could be uh six days it could be two weeks could be tomorrow don't know so looking forward to it though it's gonna be good Baby Brooks here very soon. Yeah, we're excited. We're very excited. All right. So, <clears throat> let's jump into our topic. Yeah. Closed communion. Ooh. Closed communion. Scary. Closed communion. Uh, is it scary? I th- really? I think... So, I'm not going to lie. When I first started wrestling with this subject, I'd never even, like, considered closed communion. I never even considered that thought. Um, every church I've ever been to... Um, which surprisingly now, even looking back, um, I went to a PCA church, um, Presbyterian church of America. It's the conservative Presbyterian, one of the conservative Presbyterian, uh, denominations and, um, in Lynchburg when I was at Liberty and even they practiced open communion, which looking back now is a little surprising, but, um, but yeah, I mean, when I first started thinking about open communion, I was like, Ooh, I don't know about all this business. Like, this is kind of, kind of scary. I don't know what to think. (laughs) It pushed a lot of the buttons in my head that I think American Christians don't like having pushed. Mm. So, I think maybe we should we should first talk about um, defining terms mm. would be helpful here, and I think then we should talk about. You said you fought with it. I think we should talk about that for a second. Okay. Uh, okay. So, communion. We're talking about the Lord's Supper. Mm. We're talking about. Uh, when Jesus transformed the uh, the Passover supper, mm. I had a hard time. I tried to say that this morning. Did you see me yeah. in my sermon? Try to get that out. The Passover supper. I almost Why felt I bad for you. <laughs> I was like, I couldn't find the word. I like, I could see it, but I couldn't say it. Yeah. The Passover supper. He he transformed that into the Lord's supper. Mm. Okay, so and then how the church carried that out. So that that institution, that ordinance, that sacrament. Are you comfortable with the word sacrament? Uh I just prefer the word ordinance just because I feel like it's clearer when you use that word. Um, at least okay. in our circles. Um, uh, to me, sacrament carries with it a lot of like Catholic stuff, and then people think, well, how many sacraments do you practice? But usually, if you say ordinance, you only mean two. Um, so for me, I just kind of choose to use ordinance most of the time. 
Um, but the two are interchangeable. I don't think one's bad. Okay. So we'll use ordinate so you, you don't feel bad about it. <laughs> I just said and, I wouldn't um, feel bad. <laughs> uh, okay. And uh, so th- there's really three, maybe more, uh, uh, maybe positions on how a church will use communion. Mm. They can use it openly, which means it's for anybody, Christian, non-Christian. In early America, there was a big movement where it was thought to be a converting ordinance, that it actually brought people to faith when non-Christians would take it. Uh, This is one of the reasons that Jonathan Edwards was kicked out of his church, kicked out, voted out, however you want to say it. The Jonathan Edwards, um, who, you know, all of us read the sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God of the from the Second Great Awakening. But yes, Jonathan Edwards, uh, over that issue, his uncle held that position. He did not held, hold that position and was convinced otherwise of it. Anyhow, so that, that's an interesting historical um, story. So there's open communion, which is now becoming very popular in our circles. Hmm. And then there's close, close communion, which what I understand is, you know, Christians can take it. Um, as long as they're professing to be Christian. Um, some people who have close communion might say, um, and I, I've heard this more often, Christians can take it. I've seen it both ways, actually. Christians can take it, and those who those Christians who are part of a like-minded church. So then you kind of got to find what, is, what do you mean by like-minded church, but mm-hmm. I, I've heard some of that. And then you have closed communion, which is this communion is only for the members of our church. So, yeah, is that is that pretty accurate? Yeah, no, I'd say that's fair. Um, yeah, in my mind, uh, I've always heard every church I've ever been a part of before Harvest practiced uh, what they called was open communion, um, which I think in reality, um, I think practically um, it functions um, as that. Anybody can take, and there's not really any limitations um, on that. Uh, but I think intent... Um, was more of the close communion like you were talking about where, you know, Christians can take. Um, and, and, and to be fair, the, the pastors at those churches did try to say, hey, you know, this is for Christians. If you're not a Christian, you shouldn't take. Um, but uh, definitely, I think, probably in practice, more open than close or certainly closed. Yeah. So you said, Nate, this is something you fought with. After I heard our intro, intro, that was the only one out at this point that I've heard of our podcast, um, I, I hope that people who listen to this, if anybody still listens to it now on the third episode, if there's anybody else still paying attention, um, I, I, we come off pretty serious, and I didn't, I, I wasn't hoping that was the case. I was hoping we'd be a little bit more lighthearted and a little more fun, but um, however it hits, but um, I do want to say that we all should have a lot of mercy and kindness toward one. You know, mm. kind of the saying in theology, I've always tried to hold to, and I know you too and, and many others, faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord, is in the essential things, we should have unity. Mm. In the non-essential things, we should have um, freedom in those things. And in all things, we should have charity. Mm. And so... Um, this is not a this is a non-essential, I think, 
um, part. However, it, it it's one of those non-essential things that you're going to do one one way or another with it. It's like baptism. You're either going to baptize children or you're not. In communion, you're either going to let everybody partake or some partake or just a certain people partake. So it is one of those things. You, It's not an essential, but you either got to do one thing or not with it, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I just want I just want to say that say, and maybe we can have a quick conversation, maybe some own examples in our own life. We were talking before we started today about eschatology a little bit. Uh, you know, how many doctrines do you hold now, Nate, mm-hmm. that you didn't hold the first couple years you were a Christian? <laughs> uh, like, I'll give you an example. I, I was thinking in, into the eschatology round. I can remember getting on a chat board back way back in the day in high school after I became a Christian and, you know, Tim LaHaye and Left Behind series. Like, I was all about some premillennial, dispensational, uh, Adrian Rogers kind of. Um, I mean, it was just like I was eat up with that kind of stuff, mm. man. I mean, and I would just argue with you till, you know, I turned pink about how that was non-negotiable stuff right there, man. <laughs> you know, like, you know, all of all of the all of that. And I remember getting on that chat board and just being like, I, if you don't believe this, you're not even a Christian. <laughs> if you don't believe in, you know, uh, the Left Behind series, I, I, you're not even a Christian. And I look back at myself and I think, golly, how ignorant, I think, you know, how unmerciful and just ignorant of theology and whole ignorant of the Bible. I just you can't know, get past the fact um, that in high school you were on chat boards talking about theology. That's pretty hilarious. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it happened. It happened. And uh, badly so, though. Badly. Not very well done. So, anyhow, I mean, I think about now uh, I what just how dumb that was, you know. So, I want to have mercy on and, and be kind. And so, don't want to come off hard like, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian kind of mm. thing. I don't know. Is that... Is that Hmm. John Calvin would would think less of you for that. John Calvin, you know, famously, always we always talk would about John- standing at the the table with a sword, not letting the guy in his church who was in sin take of the communion, and that's always what I think about when I think of closed communion is Calvin at the table with the sword, ready to kill somebody over it. But no, I don't I don't think we want to be seen that way, obviously, and uh, you know we want to have charity and grace for for people. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, my favorite, Martin Luther, he had no grace for people who disagreed with him on uh, consubstantiation. On anything. You know, about what actually happened. Yeah, that's true, too. (laughs) But especially, you know, that's a whole other really conversation about the Lord's Supper that I don't know if we want to get into or not. It's a much deeper conversation Mm -hmm. about what actually happens, Mm -hmm. which I think is probably... And one, one, the more glorious part of the Lord's Supper, what actually takes place at the Lord's table, at the Lord's Supper... But we're kind of talking about it from a, a more ecclesiology. That's the study of the church. And you know, I think ecclesiology in itself, we were kind of talking about eschatology there. That's the theology in the times. Just myself thinking of how that's changed just for me over the years. And uh, But I also think of, and, and it took me, you know, 12, 13 years to mm-hmm. come to what I believe about it now. And, you know, that, I'm sure that will change. And um, you know, I might be a premillennial dispensational when it's all over with. You know, I, I hardly doubt it. But, um, but I think about ecclesiology. That's another area of my own life. I think changed for me two, three years ago, yeah. four years ago to now. That I thank God just kind of for His mercy toward me 
to put me in different places to help me develop some of that. Mm. And I hope this podcast can be that for some people, can help them challenge maybe where they are in a, in a graceful but you know challenging kind of way mm. and, and hopefully move them to deeper thought or lesser thought. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I, I think about the podcast that I've listened to in my time. Um, and, and, you know, it's hard to, when you listen to something like this, uh, not just approach it from the standpoint you've always held. Uh, like I think about the first time I ever came across, um, we keep using this example um, just because it's what we were talking about, but the, the first time I ever came across the evening of eschatology uh, was when I was at Liberty and was still very unsure about a lot of things and just kind of held to what I'd always been exposed to. And that was, you know, the pre-mill dispensational view. Uh, and the first time I, I heard that, I was just like, what? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, how can you, kind of like what you were saying, you know, just like very um, opposed to it. Um, but I think when I think about, like I was saying with the podcast and the, the different media that I've um, taken in as a Christian, especially recently, um, you know, I think, Two, one of two things has happened as, as a result of that. Either I agree and am encouraged and challenged um, by it, or I disagree, and I'm either encouraged to go back to my Bible and go, wait, am I sure I disagree with this? Or right. to go, hmm, no, I really don't agree with that. And then thinking about why I, don't disagree, why I do disagree with it and realizing, you know what, especially if this is an area like the ones we've been talking about that are secondary, uh, tertiary at best. Um, you know, I can, I can still listen to this person preach and be okay with what he's saying. Um, or, and not necessarily be okay with it from the standpoint of tolerate it or accept it, but, you know, at least be willing to um, agree to disagree on this and be able to move on. So, I mean, and if, and if we could just turn anybody back to the Bible, I'd say this is a success. No, oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I, I, I've got to say, I think we need to do an episode coming up because uh, one of the areas I think in my own mind that's changed in probably the recent, uh, least, uh, of course, years, recent years, is cessationalism and continuation. Talking mm. more about the not the not spiritual gifts, but the miraculous the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit. Mm. I think that's a that should be a. I think we should do an episode on that. What do you think? Yeah, that'd be fun. Your your view on that's changed recently. Yeah, I, 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 well, changed maybe clarified, and that okay. I didn't really understand the conversation till a couple years ago. Mm, okay, yeah, that'd be fun. Always down for that. I'd be honest. I probably am ashamed to say this, but I don't know that I even come close to a decent Christian understanding of the Trinity until probably five years ago. Hmm. I think that's true of a lot of people today. I think so many people, um, you know, I, I heard it, um, I heard it recently, another pastor um, at a event outside of church that I was at. Um, he said, you know, the Trinity, it's hard to understand and you don't really have to understand it. Um, but I always kind of go back to what you said. Not true. The first time you said it, I was like, man, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, that, the Trinity really is day one for the Christian. That's something that we're called to understand and learn and know. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to go there. Um, but, but I think to your point earlier, you said um, the consubstantiation, transubstantiation talk. Um, I do think we need to touch on that a little bit um, just to kind of, I think a lot, I think how you see that and what, 
what exactly the supper is plays in a lot to how you see it playing out in the church. Because if it's just a symbol, then that's one thing. But if it's more than that, ah, um, then I think... You make a lot of good connections for me, Nate, in these conversations. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think you're 100% right. I've never thought about that, but you're 100% right. The way you view what happens in the Lord's Supper definitely affects your ecclesiological view of who's partaking, what that means when they partake. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so I think, you know, in thinking about that, um, you know, I think kind of the two camps you've got, um, well, there's three camps uh, today. You have the uh, symbolic camp, which holds to exactly what I just said. Lord's Supper is a symbol, nothing more. Um, it is simply... Uh, and and as far as I can tell, statistically, 90% of Southern Baptists. Sure, yeah. Oh, hold that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and just experientially. I mean, every church I've ever been in and taken communion, uh, the only thing I've ever heard about it said was, you know, this is uh, a picture, right? That's, that's the word that gets thrown around a lot. Um, this is a picture of what Jesus has done. This is his body. This is his blood. It's a symbol. Um, uh, do you disagree with that, Nate? I don't disagree with that statement, no. Uh, but, I, but I would say that it's more uh, than that. Um, okay. So uh, then you have, and there's actually really four camps. There's the kind of middle ground camp here, uh, which is, I think, what you hold to, what I hold to as well. Um, and that's, uh, from my understanding of, from, of the subject, there's the spiritual camp um, in that Christ is present spiritually in the supper. Um, that something happens, um, and that something is, you know, the sealing of the believer, um, and the, the and you you could historically call that the Calvin. I mean, sure. yeah, not not Calvin's view, but I mean, he's the one that first really pinned that mm. and really made that clear, yeah. and he was the first one in church history, which which you kind of got you, you kind of got to put it the camp of the you know the the transubstantiation camp, the the camp that. I know you were getting to, but those who, and it's the Roman Catholic view that think that the body, that, that the bread and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Christ mm. and, and partaking of it uh, infuses righteousness into people. That's how they uh, get a state of grace before the Lord is part, part of that is, is partaking in that sacrament. That, you know, that viewpoint is, is probably the majority of, if you say, which I don't want to say that Roman Catholics who believe in Roman Catholic doctrine are Christians, but that is the majority of professing Christians in the worldview, and historically has been up until the Reformation. So up until the 16th century, you know, from the what seventh, eighth century on till the 15th century, that's most of what you got there. And so then you got you know Luther coming on, and and he changes just a little bit, you know, and tweaks, and but really in form functionally changed it a lot. Mm. And then you got Calvin, of course, who really um, articulates the view that you're talking about. Yeah. And so I think, you know, when I think about Calvin's view, uh, you know, you have the symbol. Absolutely. Lord's Supper is a picture. Um, Jesus could not have been more explicit, right? This is my body given for you. This is my blood, you know, all that. And so uh, very clear in that account that Jesus himself um, equates the elements of the supper um, as a symbol. Um, as a picture of what he was about to go do on the cross. Um, and so I think you to say that it's not that uh, is missing it. 
Um, but then to just say that it's just that, like we've been talking about, I think misses it as well. But Luther's position, um, the best way I know to explain the difference there between Calvin's position and Luther's position is to kind of get into Luther's position a little bit. Um, and I'm not really well versed in Luther's position. I'm going to be completely honest. Um, I've heard it explained and I can never make sense of it. So maybe you'd be a better person to talk about consubstantiation. Uh, I, I could take a stab, but it's not it's not going to be pretty. I can tell you that. Um, so the Roman Catholic view, and I think it's best to see it historically. So the Roman Catholic view is that, and was when Luther comes on the scene in the early 1500s, that when the priest consecrates the 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 elements, the bread and the wine, that they physically become the bread, the, the body and blood of Jesus. They actually become it. Um, that, you know, so it, that's why Luther, when he became a priest and his dad, who had a strange relationship with his dad because he was supposed to be a lawyer, he decided to drop out of law school because, you know, the lightning bolt experience that happened <laughs> on the road and he cried out, St. Anne, if you save me, I'll become a, I'll become a monk. And so becomes a monk, becomes a priest, and his first deal is the Lord's Supper. And he, he really believes when his, his father's there, it's his first time performing the ceremony, he really believes that he's holding the body and blood of Jesus. And he freezes, much like I did this morning preaching. <laughs> but Luther, for a much more serious, reverent reason, because he actually believed that. I mean, you think about it. If you're Roman Catholic and you really believe that, then... That's really something, you know, that you're actually holding the bread. So they actually believe that. And, and some of it is uh, philosophy. That's the change. So Luther wanted to still hold because Luther kept going to when Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. And when Zwingli, tried, who was very much simplest view that we were talking about earlier, that most hold today symbolic, and a lot of people who, who do hold the symbol view kind of simplicity. So we'll go back to Zwingli, and that is what Zwingli held to. And Luther wanted to say, no, Jesus said, this is my body. Mm. And he, he wanted to say that, to borrow from Aristotle, which that's, that's what the Roman Catholics did to talk about it, that in the, the accents... Um, that is like if you had a wooden table, the accents is what it feels like. You know, if you knock it or you look at it, what it that's the accidents, the details of it. But there's actually a substance to it, like what what it actually is. Hmm. And you know, so it's it's a table. That's what it is. And so the Roman Catholic said the view says in the substance and the accidents, the bread and the wine, and and it it becomes in. In the substance, it, it is the body and blood of Jesus, and it also, in the accidents, it is the body and blood of Jesus. Therefore, uh, when Luther comes on the scene in his day, the people in churches only ate the bread. They mm. didn't drink the wine that, because it's actually the body and blood, and if you spill it, that's a big problem. That's a huge mm. problem. So they didn't actually partake of that, and that was something Luther would... Eventually, after the Reformation took off, he would ease into the people that they would start partaking of the wine too. But he wanted to say that in its substance, that the substance of the elements changed, but the accidents didn't change. So the bread still felt like bread. The wine still 
felt like wine, looked like wine, that those things didn't change, but in its substance, it changed. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, I, that's the best I got at it. But Luther also wanted to say that Jesus was offered in the sacraments. Hmm. Um, you know, so that was Luther's big thing, that you could find a gracious God hmm. of what Jesus did for you. This was his body given to you. Hmm. So that was that was really Luther's big thing, that in the Lord's Supper, you could find a you could find a gracious God. Hmm. Now, uh, and you know, there's this huge fight between him and Zwingli. The Reformation was not really united between Switzerland and Germany because of this issue. But then Calvin comes really along, has the next generation, and he espouses the view that um, Christ is present through the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And a lot of people said if Calvin w- would have been, you know, 20 years earlier. The Reformation may have went had been a lot stronger. That view may have been able to unite the camps. Mm. Yeah, and I think you know when I think about uh, Calvin's view, um, the first time I ever um, came across like actually Calvin's view um, was actually in a class not maybe a year ago. I forget which class it was. Tacoa. Um, oh, it's theology of worship. I was taking theology of worship, and uh, we had to talk about the elements or the different philosophies of the Lord's Supper. Um, and I'd always, you know, kind of knew that there was a camp and this was around the time you kind of started talking about kind of this obscure other thing that was a part of the Lord's Supper, you know, the seal that it was. And I was kind of like, what is he talking about? Um, but when I actually started looking at and studying Calvin's view, um, of the supper and then looking at scriptures and seeing how the scriptures talk about it, um, I just think there's such a richness there and, and I just see it as biblical, um, but, um, and, and maybe we could dive into that. Cause I think that's just a real, that's a, you know, we want to say at harvest that baptism and the Lord's supper are signs. We do want to say mm-hmm. they're signs. I want to say that they're signs sure. of salvation of Christ, what he's done for his people. And also, cause Jesus said, this is the sign of the new covenant mm-hmm. in my blood. And, but it's also a seal. What is a seal? It's, it's what you, it, you can see it. You can feel it. And when you're, that's why I love, one of the things I love about being able to baptize people is you're in the water with them. You mm. get to feel it. And in a real way, it's God saying to that person, it's Christ saying, I'm going to raise you from the dead and I want mm. you to feel this water. Mm. I want you to remember how cold or hot or whatever. I want you to remember going under and in. Mm. I mean, the wetness of this water. It's my promise to you. Mm. This is a seal to you. This is my promise. Uh, and so I think it's just the grace of God that not only do we get to hear the word preached, but weak in our faith, we get to feel it too. We get mm. to see it. And when we take the Lord's Supper, feeling the, the wine as we drink it, the juice and, and the bread as we eat it, I mean, actually using our senses like that in worship, it, I think we should really be cognitive of that, that mm. here, once again, is a promise from the Lord. Of future things yet to come. Sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, the Lord's Supper, um, I think is just one of the big examples, the more I've looked at it, of how the church has taken a step back um, from really God's design and intention and desire for us in worship. Um, you know, you talk about uh, being able to experience it with our senses. And, you know, so much of church today is just about sitting on a pew and watching. Um, but, um, you know, Calvin, you know, in his view and the the Bible, I think, like you said, clearly teaches, um, that in the supper, in the Lord's supper, uh, not only do we have, uh, 
a better version of the Passover, which is from the Old Testament. But we have a picture of the marriage supper that is to come, uh, which, you know, coming off of your sermon this morning, uh, I think is is timely. But, um, but beyond that, uh, as Christians, we get to, in the supper, have communion, hence the word, with Christ mm. um, and, and, and each other. so rich. Hmm. Right, right. What I love about church history, and I think that's why we got to get church history back in, in, in our churches, and because what church history makes me do is it makes me think, wait a minute, these people, they went to war over the Lord's Supper. Hmm. You know, they died over this issue. And I, how flippantly I am about it. You know, I mean, it, it really makes you stop and think about yeah. the way you see things yeah. and the importance that you put on things. And I, that's been, that's been, it's challenging to me. Mm, yeah, no, for sure. And I think just thinking about my uh, journey, I guess, to come to where I'm at uh, now on, on this issue, uh, like I've said kind of several times throughout this, I started in the camp that probably most of our listeners are going to find themselves in. And that is the symbolic camp, same camp I think you started in. And, uh, oh, yeah, 100%. Uh, for most of my life, honestly, it was just something you did at church four times a year. Um, and it was something that, you know, I would, uh, you know, show up at church, you know, looking forward to, you know, have some crackers and juice and go home and continue on about my life. Uh, got saved in high school, um, actually saved in high school. Um, that brought new meaning to it. Um, that's kind of in, in my, my walk with the Lord, uh, obviously so kind of the time when I start, started to realize like, wait, this is this is a big deal. Like this is, um, a symbol. And I, and I started there of what Jesus did for me on the cross. And this is, you know, a symbol that, um, I am a partaker of his body and of his blood. Um, and I held that position honestly for seven years, um, up until probably the last two years. Um, I visited a, uh, a church that, took communion very seriously um, and uh, was honestly like it was culture shock like I know missionaries talk about culture shock when you go to foreign countries um, but it was it was culture shock because uh, the pastor stood up and was talking about communion and um, you know I'd heard the spiel about you know first Corinthians and I think we need to get there with with the closed communion thing um, but you know talking about how important it is that you take rightly and um, that there were people in the Bible who were sick and dying because they were not taking rightly. Um, and honestly, that's kind of the first time in my, my experience with the Lord's Supper that I actually went, wait a second. This is, there's, there's something here, and I don't know what it is. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know uh, exactly what it is that, you know, is going on here. Uh, but this is something that we need to take very seriously. And so I went through a period... Um, over the last, uh, probably, uh, two of the last three years where, uh, every time that the Lord's Supper would come around, uh, I just was deep, felt deeply impressed in my heart and, and, and knew that this is something to be taken very seriously. Um, and then, you know, we start talking about Lord's Supper more. You start talking about this, uh, seal aspect of it, um, didn't like it at first, did not want to say that it was more than a symbol because I'd never heard anybody talking about anything like that. 
um, started looking into some of the church history stuff like we've talked about. Um, but for me, in thinking about the Lord's Supper, um, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back um, was the the aspects of the, the ecclesiological aspects of the Lord's Supper. Um, that's what brought me around to where I am today, not, not only with um, open versus closed, but uh, with there's more going on here than just a symbol. Uh, if, if it's just a symbol, for example, why in the world are people sick and dying? Right? If it's just a picture, then... W- if it's just a picture, then what's the big deal, right? Like what, right. you know, and, right. and so, Absolutely. uh, started going down, uh, that path and just really thinking about, okay, what, what exactly happens here? And you go to the first Corinthians passage and, um, you see how big of a deal it is there. And you go into the gospels and you read the accounts of the upper room and, um, Jesus talking about it and, and, and looking at what happened in that moment, the disciples had fellowship with their savior. Um, and, and they didn't know it or maybe didn't realize it fully yet, but he was about to go to a cross and die for their sins. Um, and in that moment, he gave them a picture, yes, um, but he gave them a seal that, hey, what's about to happen? It's going to be okay. I'm going to be raised from the dead, and if you have your faith, if your faith's in me, you too will be raised from the dead, um, which you know Peter obviously famously goes and does his thing. So there's that. Maybe it didn't get through his skull like it didn't get through my skull for a while, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, that, that's, you know, we kind of talked about my journey to how I got to where, where I am now. And, and, and really those, those, that's for me kind of how I got here. So. Yeah. So I, I think there's a couple, you know, questions to think through, especially when you're reading for me, the Corinthian passages mm-hmm. and, and there's some things you gotta, you kind of gotta think about in the Bible that maybe passages that didn't first hit you because of, um, your church background that may be talking about the Lord's Supper that you didn't notice, such as uh, Revelation um, chapter 3, when he's talking to the church in Laodicea. I want to come in and sup with my people, stand at the door and knock, that perhaps that is not a evangelism, you know, um, invitation text only, mm. but it is, in fact, maybe a Lord's Supper text. Mm, something I'm playing, I, I, I'm fighting with, and I just need to study more. Is John six talking about the Lord's Supper? So much of church history has hung on John chapter six, actually, when mm. it comes to the Lord's Supper. Um, but you know, the Corinthian passage, which is just very clearly talking about communion. But I, I think in my own mind, chapter ten, and I think I got to where I am as a pastor thinking about this, mostly what's going on in chapter 11 mm. and then being turned to chapter 10 too when when Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper that you could just kind of miss that uh, you could we all go to chapter 11 mm. but then you could go to chapter 10 you know I think something interesting just to note for um, church historians that are interested in Harvest Baptist Church which which is zero uh, <laughs> we started our Harvest Baptist the first Sunday morning was a sermon on closed communion. That's true. You, I, if I had, I'm, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I would be willing to, uh, bet as much money as I had right now on the fact that we are the only SBC church plant to have ever done that. 
<laughs> I don't know that we'll be able we to... Should s- write a, we should write a book. The reason you should start your church plant with a sermon on close communion. <laughs> well, I think it was interesting, I don't though. know the wisdom in that, looking back on it. Well, yeah, I mean, it might have been a little ambitious, but in thinking about it and, and just seeing how <laughs> we've gotten where we are now, um, I just think about how much some of our members have grown as a result of that um, and just no, and, and thinking about that. So I wouldn't have gone back and changed it. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. And, but to your point earlier, the way that you see, so the symbolic view is simply saying that the Lord's supper is really something that happened in the past. Mm. Yeah. That it is, is mostly a past phenomenon mm. and we're just kind of celebrating something that's already happened. Well, the view that, that that we've been talking about, this sign and a seal view, is that there is something happening when God's people assemble together on the Lord's day and take the Lord's Supper together. Mm. That Jesus Christ is present with his people. Mm. That he is communing, we call it communion, that he is communing with his people. And that in that communion that we are communion with one another as members of that church in a more deep, deeper way, that we're actually becoming more unified in that moment. And it's, it's, so it's not just a past reality, something that we're celebrating in the present, but God is actually doing something in the present. And I want to say it's a, it's a sanctifying work for his people, that it, mm. is, it is what you kind of hit on this morning in Sunday school. It is a normal means of grace. Mm. It is one of the things that God uses to sanctify his people. Hmm. And so it, it is part of our salvation, not in a justifying sense, but in an ongoing week by week, quarter by quarter, <laughs> year by year, however you want to put it, however you want to often you want to celebrate it. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said you should, how often is often it's, it should be often, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And maybe we could talk about why we haven't celebrated it so often at harvest. Um, maybe that that's maybe a discussion maybe for another time or maybe, maybe today. Um, but, yeah, so I, I think First Corinthians ten and eleven for me, mm. it, it it just and I'll just tell you how I got to where I why I think closed communion is. I'll just give you my three arguments for it. Okay, uh, just for the record, I wrote an article on it, and uh, the elders at Harvest did not think it was worth publishing, so we haven't done that yet. <laughs> it's not that we <laughs> didn't think it was be. worth publishing. It's just that we thought it needed some time. Uh, needed some time. Is that what it was? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'll just, I'll just kind of state the overview there, okay? One, I think it's biblical. I think close communion is biblical. I think in chapter 10, verse 17, Paul's clear. It's when many believers become one in the Lord's Supper. It is an, There's an outward present reality of these people saying we are the body of Christ right here. We are identifying ourselves as Christians and we're identifying other people as Christians. Hmm. So in that very act, this is an outward boundary of these people partaking are part of the body of Christ as far as we can tell. So it is a, an approving of one another's professions and lives lived as far as we can tell with the Lord. So it is that, I believe, one, this is what makes a church a church. Hmm. If you didn't have the Lord's Supper and baptism, all you would have was Bible study. You would not have a church. Because a church is a group of people, one, saying, we are Christians, and we are saying, we are actually judging who is and who is not Christians. That's what a church is, and that's what a church does. Now, how popular that is, <laughs> that's probably when everybody quit listening to Big Boy Church. But that's exactly <laughs> what's taking place, mm. you know, because um, 
Paul's telling people in First in First Corinthians to excommunicate people, mm. throw this guy out of the church. He's not to take communion with you anymore. Mm. So that's got that's got visibly that's got an effect on the mm. world seeing who is and who's not partaking in the Lord's Supper. So yeah. There's that aspect of it. But then there's, um, in chapter 11, why is it that people are getting sick? And I think that's why I'm probably, that's to me the most the biggest biblical answer why I'm in favor of closed communion. Because why are people, I mean, Paul's pretty clear in the text, we're not going to read it, but it's pretty clear why people are getting sick and dying. Because they're, he says they're drunk, <laughs> they're, they're partaking of Lord's Supper before other people in the church get there. They're not waiting on people. And it simply, they're not being committed to the church. They're not waiting on one another. Mm. They're not considering the body of Christ. Mm. And so I think it's clear the right way to take the Lord's Supper is in a church where people are considering one another and serving one another and caring for one another. So, um, therefore, it makes sense that only people part of that body of Christ at that local church should be taking communion there. Um, and, and I remember in the sermon, I tried to equate this, and I got this from Bobby, uh, Bobby Jameson, and I would highly encourage his book on communion. I think it's called The Basics of the Church, The Lord's Supper. But um, he equates it to at a wedding ceremony. Well, there's a lot of people at a wedding ceremony, but there's only two people putting rings on the finger, right? <laughs> there's only two people making the covenant because they're the ones committing to one another. Mm. And in the Lord's Supper, number one, to Luther's point, it is the Lord committing to his people, and that's where most people stop. That is happening for sure. But it's also where people are committing to one another. Yeah. And if that wasn't the case, why is Paul so upset that these people in Corinth are not considering and committing and serving one another? No, yeah. In fact, that's why he's so tore up. Yeah, no, I think, and, and again, when I when I first realized that, um, honestly, the whole like closed communion picture just kind of clicked in my head because it was like, wait a second, um, you know, this is more than just a symbol. So all of a sudden that makes sense. Um, but... Uh, and I think in my mind, the, the part about communing with one another clicked first. Um, you know, we're, we're communing with one another. Paul, you know, says here, you know, wait on one another. Um, you know, historically speaking, the church met in the evenings. Um, and so, uh, you know, people would be, you know, coming home or whatever, and they'd be showing up late, and people would be showing up church, and they'd already have communion. They couldn't be one body. Um, and so Paul's instructions here to wait on one another. Uh, I think it's just so... Um, uh, it's just so vital to understand if you're going to grasp this text. And, and to me, um, you know, when I think about the Lord's Supper in the church today, um, I, I think that's just another fruit. And it's something that I've probably said too much on this podcast, um, but I'll probably keep saying it because I think it is one of the biggest downfalls of the modern American church. And that is, the effect of postmodern individualism in the church, where it's all about you. It's all about your experience. It's all about your relationship with the Lord. Um, and there's no look past that. It's There's no communal, um, there's no uh, body of Christ. And you said earlier, you know, the body of Christ, Paul's talking about their local church. Um, and, you know, the pushback we've both gotten on that is, well, isn't the body of Christ the universal church? Um, but when you look at how Paul uses 
that phrase in the book of first Corinthians, he's always talking about that church. He's never talking about the global church. And right. And not to oversimplify it. He's wrote to a church. Yeah. Corinthians is written to a church. Mm. Um, and the, most of the books in the new Testament are written to churches, mm. individual churches. Um, and some to multiple churches like the book mm. of Galatians, but to our best, what we can tell, but still it's written to churches. Yeah. And so when you have that fact alongside the fact of, you know, Paul is commanding here, a communal taking of the supper, you know, I think back to during COVID, um, I was not settled on this issue at that point. Um, and when we did, you know, virtual communion at the church we were at, uh, it, it rubbed me wrong. Like, I didn't like it, but I didn't know why I didn't like it. Um, and I knew there was something about being together that mattered, but I didn't know why. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, I think this is why, um, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about this podcast is because, um, you know, I, I hope that, like we said at the beginning, it's challenging people to think through some of these things more deeply um, and, you know, have a, a bigger boy version of church in their in their head. Yeah. 100%. So, uh, I think what we're saying, what I want to say is, it's. I think it's biblical. Mm. Two, it's historical. It's historical in that ever since the Reformation, one, the Lutherans are, as far as I can tell, the most closed communion people on the planet. Like they, they're very strict about being closed communion. So it, it's been since the Reformation. Um, Presbyterians, I think, kind of go back and forth on that. You know, on closed communion. As far as I can tell in Presbyterianism, and I could be wrong, so if there's a Presbyterian who would ever listen to this and could help me understand this, um, just because bab- most Presbyterians baptize children, they don't actually see them as Christians until they take the Lord's Supper and become, in that way, a confessing member of the church. So, uh, But it, it's, it's historical. In our, we hold to 1833, our Confession of Faith, our New Hampshire Confession of Faith, um, our 1833, which is not very old in church history, but it is, you know, 200 years mm-hmm. old. 200 years ago, our confession says um, it was for members of the local church. Mm-hmm. Okay. The 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, which was only 23 years ago written, we hold to also at Harvest Baptist Church, also says it's for members of the local church. Mm-hmm. So it's confessional, it's historical all the way up to about 20 years ago, <laughs> and it's not anymore. Um, and we could talk more about the Southern Baptist argument and debate going about that in today. But, and I want to say it's practical, hmm. and I know I always like to make an argue for practicality, not, but <clears throat> it's, it's practical because, and, and Nate, you made this point to me, I think, that I don't know how you have true church discipline in our context, um, from church to church, mm. if you don't have closed communion, just because, you know, if if you church, if I nay, if I'm I'm a member at Harvest, which I am, and Harvest, you know, comes down on me because I'm living in sin and I'm disciplined by the church, I'm no longer able to take communion. I can just get in my car and go to the next church, mm. which has open communion, which is pretty much all of them around. Mm. So I can go there and take communion. Right, mm. and nobody's you know that church discipline in effect was no big deal. Mm. So you know, it, I don't know if without having close communion, which at our church, just for policies and procedures, I guess you could say, 
when somebody we have closed communion, so we say communion is just for our members. But if anybody is interested in taking communion with us, please talk to one of our elders. And in those conversations, we want to hear people's testimony, what they think it means to be a Christian, and where they are in relationship to churches. Are they members of other churches? Have they been disciplined in other churches? Do are they desiring to be members of our church and just haven't been through our process yet? You know, mm-hmm. so we we take all that into into account so that. Um, we highly encourage people who just come off the street and just happen to show up Sunday morning when we're having communion. We we ask them not to take communion with us if we've not been able to have conversations like that with them. Mm. Yeah, and I think in my mind, um, and, and again, I, I keep going back to stuff that that you've said, but that's because honestly, your your influence in this area has been been great in my life and has pointed me in a lot of uh, biblical directions. But um, that that reality of having members who are uh, faithful to the church and who are um, engaged and attending in the church, uh, it, it allows you to have a meaningful communion um, because, A, there's, there's deeper fellowship there within the church. Um, there's wow. you know, deeper relationships. I can look across the aisle and know um, the struggles of other people in the church and know the hard times they face, know the things that are going on in their life um, and be encouraged that they're persevering in their faith um, and that they're holding fast to the gospel. Um, but then on the, on the flip side of that, um, when the church discipline part is practiced, which like we've already said has happened at harvest um, already, um, you know, to me, that just adds a whole nother layer, you know, going back to the first Corinthians passage of, you know, it seems like God and his Holy Spirit through Paul is communicating in first Corinthians that this aspect of the Lord's or that this um, practice of church discipline is like, I'm giving you the Lord's Supper. It's, it's more than just a sign and a symbol. It's saying something about your church. It's you saying something to one another. And because of that, if there's someone, First John, who leaves from you, shows that they're not of you, so don't let them take anymore. Um, if it's just mm-hmm. a symbol, who cares? Right. Yeah, if it's just a symbol, let everybody partake, right? Yeah. Like, if it's just a symbol, get all the kids out of nursery and let them partake. Yeah, in why it. not? And more or less, that's what's happening today. Yeah. In churches around us. Yeah. And I... Yeah. And you think that's for... You think that's good or bad for the future of... Christianity in our area, the fact that that's how most churches do it, right? Um, I'm hopeful, honestly. Um, I and I'm hopeful on this on this standpoint, and it goes back to a little bit of the church history thing that we've been talking about. Um, I heard a guy the other day, and I can't remember who it is for the life of me. Um, but it's one of the guys that you and I listen to frequently. Um, that's the best I can give you. Um, say that it's his belief that the Reformation is still going on. Um, that the Reformation will look back and that the Reformation is still currently taking place and that 200 years from now, if the Lord tarries, uh, church historians will look back and include um, the, the Great Awakenings and up until today in the Reformation. Um, that's, quite a, that's quite an interesting thought. 
And, and the argument he made, and I'm gonna have to find it and put it in the notes or something. But the argument he made was that the church has never stopped reforming, and and this is the, one of the mottos of the Reformation, right? Always reforming, but that the church has never stopped reforming, and I, I don't guess it will stop reforming. Um, but to answer your question, I'm hopeful because it seems like God is not done with, you know, pointing Christians back to the truth of Scripture and that there are churches that still yeah. practice this. Um, and that while probably most of them don't, um, I'm grateful to be counted in one of the ones that do. Um, and it's my mm-hmm. prayer that, that we will see more people um, come around to that. Uh, for, for their own, listen, like so many people when, we, when we've, when I've talked to them about open or open and closed communion, uh, the, the response is, well, that's just hateful. I, mm. You know, I, I don't see how anything could be more loving. Like a hundred percent because, and we should talk about that because I agree a hundred percent because if, if the Bible is true and there are people dying in, in that church for taking unworthily which is not just, and that's always equated to if you take as a non-Christian, that's unworthily. Mm-hmm. That's not what's happened no. in the Corinth passage. What's happened in the, and, and it's it's not even people who are got sin in their life. Just, I mean, it is, but the sin in their life is not being committed mm-hmm. and serving the local church. Yeah, not being a part of the local church. Yeah, and in my, in my mind, when I think about you know how. You might ask the question, how is closed communion more loving than open communion? Uh, I think it's a more loving to the believers within the church because it promotes a deeper sense of unity and communion, uh, to use the word, uh, fellowship, um, within the local body. Um, So many churches, so many Christians today, uh, church is a attend and go home thing. It's a watch and see and go home thing. There's very little aspect of any real sense of deep abiding communion. Um, if, if you want to know why so many Christian young adults uh, are turning away from, and I read an article about this a couple years ago, uh, Christian young adults my age, your age, Chris, um, you know, 30-somethings, millennials, um, are leaving uh, big evangelical churches because they are finding them to be hollow and meaningless. Um, hmm. And they are turning largely to high church. They're turning to Catholicism. They're turning to uh, Lutheranism. They're turning to the, these churches that hold to these, you know, uh, more serious standards. You know, I think about uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, call to the churches. I don't know if you saw that or not. Um, I have seen that. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things he said in that was expect more people. People don't want it to be expected of less. And I think when, when you hold open communion... Um, it holds people to a higher standard to one another. You know, this is this is more than just a symbol. This is more than us remembering what Jesus did for us. This is us here and now communing with one another, loving on one another, holding each other accountable through church discipline. But not only that, it's loving to people who are not in the church. Um, because as a pastor, and this is something that we've talked about, the the most loving thing that I can do for somebody is if I look at their life, or if I don't know them, uh, it, great example. If I, if you and I go to the mall of Georgia today and I walk in and just start walking around telling everybody, Hey, you're a Christian. You're going to go to heaven. See you there. Go to the next person. Hey, you're a Christian. I'll see you there. Hey, you're a Christian. I'll see you there. And I'm wearing a pastor name badge. 
people are going to walk out of the mall yeah. thinking, man, I got this made. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Well, what do we do when <laughs> yeah. we let non-Christians take communion? Or, or at least We're don't encourage the them not thing. to. We're doing the exact same thing. Right. And that's the most right. unloving thing we can do as Christians. If, if we believe the gospel, which we do, um, then, you know, how important is it for us to say, you know what? If you're not a Christian, you don't need to take, and, and really, effectively, and, and, and just uh, as a local church, how can you know somebody's a Christian if they're not a member? Mm. Like, actually, because they're not under the care of the church. They're not um, in uh, service in the church. They're not, um, you know, I don't, when we mm. make pastoral phone calls, who do we call? We call our church members. Um, are there prospects, people like that we call? Absolutely, yeah. But in terms of deep knowing people, asking them questions, things like that, we call church members. And so um, outside of church membership, I don't know how you have any sense of, of confidence in saying this person's a Christian or not. And the, the, the heat that I've caught from that is, well, then you're judging people. Well, Paul's pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 5. We are not to judge those outside the church. That's, we don't judge those people. But he says we do judge those inside the church. Mm. Those claiming to be Christians, that we, he very clearly says we're to judge. Well, and I think to that point, when people say you, you're not to judge somebody, I think what they miss is the fact that by giving the Lord's Supper, you're very much judging a person. Um, mm-hmm. By allowing or encouraging somebody to take the Lord's Supper, you're very much judging that person. Uh, whether you realize it or not, um, you know, if you practice open communion, you say, hey, if you're here and you want to take, take. What you're essentially saying is, hey, if you're here, chances are you're a Christian. Go ahead, risk it. It's fine. Uh, and and <laughs> what I, ju- I just want to say to pastors who might hear this is that if you have a close communion, and by close communion you mean that you say all Christians are, it, it's it's open to Christians only. It's not open to non-Christians, so that would be, you know, a closed communion, which most people will call that open communion, but historically it's not open communion. But if that's what you do, I would just want to encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 and just look really hard there. That is there also a commitment one to another that Paul is not encouraging? And are you missing out on that commitment in your church? And, And to that point, Chris... Can if that's what you say, my my question would be: When you stand before God, will you actually be able to say with confidence that the people in your church who you stood from the pulpit and said in in twenty first century America, hey, if you're a Christian, you can take. Uh, when I get to heaven, if that's right. what I said, I have a very low confidence that. Most people who walk through the doors of a church today would be, you know, on the right side of that statement because everybody we well, talk to is a Christian. And, and, and talk, yeah, and talking about the practicality of having close communion where we live, where we do ministry, where our church is located, 56 per, 56% of people are Baptists. Hmm. Less than 10% of them will go to church this coming Sunday. Hmm. But they are Baptist people. <laughs> they are not claiming just to be Protestants, not just to be Christians, and not just Protestant Christians, but Baptist Protestant Christians. Mm. Okay, people of the book, but yet little to no fruit in their life mm. that they are Christians. 
And to your point, how much love are we really giving to them if we just say, hey, if you're claiming to be a Christian, partake? Well, that's where I think. When there seems to be no evidence and no desire in their life to be a part of a church, to be committed to a local body of church, which gets into another conversation is that we should have at another time is, can there be Christians who are not part of churches? Or who can there be a Christian who doesn't desire to be a part of a local church? Mm. Sounds like a good next episode. Yeah, I, and I'll tell you another good episode. One we've got to do is what the Reformation is really all about. Mm. We've got to do that one because, uh, well, truly, this is what the Reformation is really about. The Reformation was not a soteriology fight. Mm. It, it it was in the sense of justification versus um, the Roman Catholic view that sanctification was justification. That that this um, and part of the Lord's Supper was part of how people became righteous in the six other sacraments. Mm. That that's how people got a state of grace and were accepted before the Lord. Mm. And and the gospel fight of of the Reformation was no salvation is in Christ alone by faith alone, mm. right? According to God's word alone, which is God's grace alone. It's all of God's grace, mm. right? It, it's not of anything that we do. It's in Christ alone, and it's by faith alone. Faith is the instrument of salvation, not the sacraments. So um, that was, you know, that was what, as far as theology, when it comes to soteriology, what the Reformation was about. But the Reformation was more of a transformation of worship than it was of a debate on predestination. Hmm. Much more so. In fact, interestingly to note, Luther, uh, Melanchthon, his right-hand man uh, throughout most of his life, was against predestination, was against that doctrine, which is very interesting on why Luther never wrote much about predestination outside of the bondage of the will, and mostly because his best friend in ministry did not agree with him on it. Hmm. And for him, that wasn't a huge issue. What was a huge issue for them in the Reformation was the reformation of the local church. It was the worship of the local church, and it was the assurance of salvation that people had, mm. which the Lord's Supper played a part of. No, absolutely. And I think really that really kind of encapsulates the whole conversation we've just had um, and are having about the Lord's Supper, and that is that really ecclesiology um, is an outflow of the rest of what you think about theology. Um, and when I think about the Lord, or when I think about the Reformation, uh, you see a lot of the, the theological discussions going on um, around, like you said, soteriology, um, you know, and, and, and that's the big one that everybody... Calvinism, Arminianism, yeah. debate. Yeah. That's yeah. usually what people get to, but that's, that's, that is like, historically, it, it's not even, re- it's, it's not the core of what the Reformation was about. I mean, yes, related. Yes, mm. it's important. But it wasn't what was on the forefront of their minds when mm. the Reformation was going on. Yeah. You know, I mean, to your point, ecclesiology, John Huss, a hundred years before Luther, is, cru- is burned at the stake. And all because Huss was saying that the church is made up of, of believers, mm. of God's people, and that the Pope and the bishops... They're not the church. Yeah. 
and they couldn't know if they're part of the church or not. That's mm. what got John Huss burned at the stake. Mm. And when Luther has his first at Heidelberg, the Heidelberg Disputation, they come out of there saying, he's a Hussite. <laughs> he's a Hussite, and that's a big problem. Mm. And, uh, and Luther's response to that was, well, at the um, Diet of Constance, which is where Huss was burnt, uh, y'all messed a lot of things up there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, so, uh, and that's part of what John Huss was saying was right. Mm. And so, you know, that's what got Luther kicked out of the church. Mm. It wasn't his view on, you know, what well, was soteriology, but it wasn't on, you know, the finer points of sure. Tulip. <laughs> that was not what got him kicked out of the Roman Catholic mm. Church at all. No, but I think what you believe about God affects how you worship him. Um, and when you see, you know, this discussion over the Lord's Supper, um, what you believe about God and what you believe about the gospel, what you believe about uh, salvation even, will affect how you practically worship God. Um, and just in, in my own life, own experience, um, you know, kind of the, the Lord's Supper has been kind of one of the last dominoes to fall, so to speak. But looking back, it's really kind of the end of a chain of a long line of other reformations that happened in my own heart, um, going back to, you know, soteriology and, um, you know, then uh, eschatology was one of the ones that fell, and then uh, ecclesiology, and then, you know, getting into ecclesiology, some of the uh, finer details, Lord's Supper, ordinances, things like that. Um, but is there anything else you can think of, Lord's Supper, we need to, to cover? I think we've covered a good bit of it. And I, I just want to maybe say, uh, you know, if, if anybody's still listening, which I doubt it, but, um, would you know, when we come back, I think we should really have the conversation about why we want to be modern-day Puritans. Mm. That when you have a rich theology, a rich ecclesiology, and evangelism, that's what the Puritans were all about. Mm. That was the, that's what I think the Reformation was all about. Mm. Absolutely. They weren't just mean old men wanting to stand in a pulpit and scream no. at people. But no. when you yeah, understand and, and theology, was... sometimes you have to be a mean old man standing in the pulpit screaming at people. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, it I, don't hurt. That's I, for I sure. mean, I don't think the, the sinners in the hands of an angry God thing, right? Like that's the the sermon everybody wants. To, oh, that's just mean, you know, old Jonathan Edwards who was bigoted and you know, blah blah blah. Yeah. blah. It's like, but you read it and it's like. This guy cared about his congregation. Like he actually loved these people, <laughs> and he he cared yeah, about what I, they I'm thought. I'm trying and... to. I think it was Ligon Duncan who was saying he was sitting at. Um, I'm trying to remember what university, Cambridge, I believe it was. Mm. He was sitting at Cambridge. I want to say whatever university he went to in England, and uh, he's sitting in a class and college class, and uh, they're going over this sermon, and the professor says something to the effect of. Can you believe how people used to view God? I mean, nobody today sees God the way that Jonathan Edwards saw God. <laughs> and Lincoln Duncan raises his hand and says, actually, I agree with every part of that sermon. So what mm. you just said is false. There's at least one other person, and he's in this room, that actually sees it just the way Jonathan Edwards mm. seen it. You know, um, And so, yeah, I mean, you read that sermon today, it's not popular. I don't know how many Southern Baptist churches it would be popular in. Mm. Not many. Not many. Mm. Yeah, I think just in, in kind of closing, though, if I had one thing to say to a, a pastor, a church member, as it comes to Lord's Lord's Supper, um, it would just be to, to, to go back to the Bible and to think 
hard about what you read. Um, mm-hmm. Don't just do what you do and say what you say because it's the, the script that you've got written out to read every third month. Um, right. Don't just Absolutely. stand before your congregation and say, hey, this is a, a picture of the cross and this is a picture of what Jesus did for us and, and move on. Um, consider how seriously Paul talked about it and and uh, really try to to be faithful in that area. And that's that's at a church plant, it's kind of different, I think. You know, we kind of mm. said it how we wanted it to be, uh, apparently from the very first sermon, you know. But, <laughs> um, you know, established churches, that can be a... You could end up where Jonathan Edwards ended up. Hmm. Is it worth it? But they... Uh, it, well, for him it was. And they called him back, actually, I think, at the end of his life. Hmm. And uh, they still disagreed with him. Hmm. And uh, he died in the minority hmm. of of his view of the Lord's Supper. But, uh, hey... Sometimes it takes that, yeah. Mm. And if you're there, teach towards it. Don't feel like you gotta steer the ship super quick. Even, even in the church plant. I mean, and, and this is something that we said we might bring up, but you know, even in the church plant, you know, we we went in saying, hey, we're gonna have closed communion. Um, but we've had to shepherd people through that. Our people through that. Members through that. The um, the elders won't let me publish my paper. That's not true. You can publish it. <laughs> you have my vote. Can I? Can I? I need one more. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, I mean, just, yeah, got to teach towards it. Be patient with it. And, and and for me, the biggest thing with this this issue that I keep coming back to is I look back over the last eight years of my life that I've been a Christian and never thought one thing about it. Or, wow, I've been a Christian longer than eight years. Uh, the last 12 years of my life since I became a Christian. Um, and how long I went into a church and out of a church. Um, how many times I could, took communion and never thought about it this way. And realizing that God was patient enough with me, then I need to be patient with other people. And, and to that pastor again, I would just say, how many good conversations at Harvest we've been able to mm-hmm. have with people. And how clarifying it has been for us to mm-hmm. have close communion about who's actually in with us mm-hmm. and who's out. Mm-hmm. And who we really don't know where they are. <laughs> Even still, but at least we know we don't know where they are. You know, we don't, We're not wondering about mm-hmm. it. I guess we are, maybe. But, um, but I, I just think practically it's been so helpful. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, and it's given some really good gospel conversations. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so much more could be said on this. I think. Yeah. Even though we've said a lot, I think a lot more could be said. Yeah, for sure. Maybe we'll have to come back. So and So be revisit looking it. out, f- or look for the article that whenever I can, <laughs> uh, since I've got your vote, I can convince one more elder to vote for. Maybe I can just publish it myself as just put me, it on your Facebook page. It doesn't have to be. A, I can just I can just go public with it like that. Yeah. Mm. If it wants to be. Well, you missed your opportunity last. I don't know what my options are. Last month apparently was uh, coming out month, so you missed your opportunity on that one. <laughs> coming out as a closed communist. Yeah. Which nobody cares. <laughs> uh, <laughs> more people care than you realize. Yeah. Uh, this was fun. Oh yeah, I do remember the the debate we had. This is fun. Yep. Let's do it again. You want to? Yeah. Yeah. So next time, Puritanism. Why Puritan? Yeah, what the Reformation maybe was really about and why we maybe do want to be continuing it. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, sounds good. Hope you listened through that and challenged by it. Join us again next time for Big Boy Church.
Thank you for listening to the Big Boy Church Podcast. Big Boy Church is a ministry of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, you can check out our website at harvestbc.church. You can also email us at contact.harvestbc at gmail.com. We hope to have you back next time for another episode of Big Boy Church. Thank you.